Hey Vancouver, how are you? Welcome to episode two of 12th and Canby, the podcast. On today's show, Dr. Patricia Daly, the Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. Listen in as she brings us up to date on the drug overdose crisis, how public health is shaping city policy, and her thoughts on legalization of drugs. So let's get to it. Uh, Dr. Daly, thank you for coming in today. My pleasure to be here. I wanted to start by having you talk about your role uh, as Chief Medical Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. Uh, Many people are familiar with your name, but I I know that not all of our listeners know exactly what you do. I'm a public health physician, and uh, that means that I'm responsible for monitoring and improving the health of the population. So your family doctor, who you see, is responsible for your individual health. I'm a physician who looks at the health of the entire population and implements initiatives to improve it. And they can range from from, uh, assessing environmental health risks and mitigating those. For example, ensuring we have safe drinking water, sending inspectors into restaurants to ensure there's safe food handling practices, uh, to uh, immunization programs, uh, providing support for women in pregnancy and new mothers so that children start life healthy. Uh, working with schools to improve the health of school-aged children. So public health is a very broad-ranging specialty, but it's primarily responsible for monitoring and improving the health of populations rather than individual patients. And uh, I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners and a lot of people who are switched on to what's going on with the opioid overdose crisis know that you've been on the front lines of this. So before you came in today, I happened to get some new stats on the number of illicit drug deaths uh, for January. Uh, and the numbers that I received were 116 deaths in January, which is a decrease from 142 in December. So what do you make of those statistics? Well, it's not surprising. We have been um, monitoring our own statistics in the month of January, including emergency department visits, uh, overdoses that occur at Insight. We get data from the Vancouver Police Department And we could tell that um, while November and and December were particularly bad months here in Vancouver and elsewhere in the province, things seem to have come down a little bit in January, but we're still at a very high level, certainly more deaths than we saw earlier in the year. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's not just in Vancouver, this is around the province, so it's still very concerning. Now, Dr. Kendall uh, proclaimed a public health emergency last uh, spring, I believe. That's right. Uh, What is a public health emergency. Can you explain that, what that looks like for people who hear that term, but they don't understand what it actually means? It means that, that this is a particularly severe threat that, that uh, warrants extraordinary measures, not necessarily only from public health officials, but from the rest of the healthcare system or other sectors to address it. And it was really driven by uh, the very large increase in number of illicit drug overdose deaths, um, only once uh, in the last 25 years since I've been here in BC have, has a public health emergency been declared because of, of an increase in overdose deaths, and that was limited to the downtown east side of Vancouver in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that time, we had very high numbers of overdose deaths and high rates of HIV. It was that declaration that led to the establishment of Insight and other harm reduction measures. What's unique about this particular emergency is that it's province-wide um, we, we know that overdose deaths occur throughout the province. 
Uh, we know that um, historically there have been higher numbers in the downtown east side. But when this crisis was declared, initially the rates of overdose deaths were actually higher in communities outside of Vancouver, uh, Kelowna, Victoria, many places around the province. By the end of the year, Vancouver had the highest overall death rate because of a real spike in November and December, but this is province-wide. It's not sparing any region of the province. You've heard the critics who have said that the, the provincial government or police or health providers did not act quickly enough uh, to this crisis, or it is a crisis because those bodies did not act quickly enough. What do you say to that? I would say that this is a very complicated problem, and there's not a single solution if there were a vaccine to prevent addictions, we would be putting all our money and efforts into providing that. If there were a pill that could cure people of opioid addiction, we'd be putting all our funding into that. But addiction is a very complicated, complex, chronic health problem, uh, and there's not one solution to address this crisis. So uh, the, the province has established a joint task force with public safety and with the health sector. And we've been working jointly together to implement a number of measures. And I think we did start in the right way, which was the broad distribution of naloxone, which is the antidote to opioid overdoses. Um, it can uh, reverse uh, severe overdoses and prevent death. That was our first response, really an emergency response, because it's not preventing any overdoses, it's just right. trying to prevent people from dying. And that, that in itself was a complicated initiative to, to roll that out, to train people on how to administer that drug because it's given by injection, and to, to make sure it gets to people who, re who need it. And we've, since that time, been implementing a number of other measures to address the problem. But uh, it's going to require more efforts and initiatives that we haven't yet implemented widely before I think we see a turnaround in the crisis. Um, I wanted to say earlier this week, I, I finally got around to reading uh, Provincial Court Judge Bonnie Craig's reasons for sentencing a, uh, I think he was 53 years old, uh, this guy to 13 years in prison, something like 13 years and uh, 144 days for drug offenses. A good portion of those offenses um, was connected to the possession and sale of fentanyl. Um, did you have a chance to read that decision or do you, do you have a reaction to uh, to that sentence? seems like a lengthy one. Uh, well, I know that uh, uh, Vancouver police, they'll tell you that they are focusing all of their drug enforcement efforts on fentanyl. And they're not focused on uh, users. Uh, the, the police here in Vancouver are great partners in addressing this crisis. They understand that those people suffering from opioid addiction have a chronic medical problem. They are focusing on uh, the, the sale and distribution of the illicit drug. Mm -hmm. This is not a crisis, in my opinion, that we can enforce our way out of. Mm -hmm. So while I uh, applaud the efforts of the uh, public safety sector to try and um, prevent the spread of fentanyl, we know that um, illicit drugs do make their way into Vancouver, and despite the efforts of law enforcement, we've never been able to stop that. I think we have to plan uh, to uh, address this crisis in other ways because fentanyl and other uh, similar drugs that are going to escalate the crisis will continue to arrive here. We've already seen, for example, carfentanil, yeah. which is an even more powerful and deadly drug than fentanyl. We believe that was responsible for the increase in deaths in November and December. It's here in Vancouver, it's elsewhere in the province, and there may be others in future. So the, uh, the chemists are going to keep ahead of us. I, I applaud the efforts of the police, and they should continue to try and stop the distribution of these illicit drugs, but that's not going to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. 
Quite a lengthy sentence. It got a lot of press, um, 14 years. Uh, there were there were some other drugs involved in this case, but I just wanted to read you uh, an excerpt uh, from the judge's reasons. Um, there was a paraphrased testimony from a Dr. James Kennedy. Do you know mm-hmm. Dr. Kennedy? Here's how uh, she summed up what he said, and I'll just read it to you. And it's, it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's important that uh, we talk about this. Uh, it says, uh, in cross-examination, Dr. Kennedy agreed that much of the blame for what has been described as the opioid epidemic can be attributed to the overprescription of opioids as pain medication by medical doctors in the 1990s. Doctors were convinced by prescription drug companies that opioid painkillers were effective and rarely caused addiction. As the medical profession started to better understand the risks associated with opioid use, including its addictive qualities, doctors started to cut patients off their prescriptions. This led to people turning to the street to find their drugs, which in turn led to an increased demand for opioids on the street. So is Dr. Kennedy right? Are medical doctors to blame for this? I think there's a lot of truth to that. I, I think we still in Canada overprescribe opioids, uh, also in the United States. And you have seen that um, uh, elsewhere in North America and the U.S., they've had uh, a real problem with heroin overdoses, and they attribute it to uh, the same initial root cause, overprescribing of opioids. But I would say that that's not uh, entirely what we're seeing here in Vancouver and the rest of British Columbia. Okay. We know that um, that the vast majority of people who are dying are chronic opioid addicts, many of them heroin addicts. They weren't necessarily people who started using opioids for chronic pain relief. There may be some of those people, but that's not what is primarily uh, at the root of our crisis here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that um, that the the College of Physicians and Surgeons in BC has recognized that that um, uh, doctors need to be better trained on how to manage chronic pain, how best to prescribe opioids. But there is danger in cutting people off if they've been receiving these medications long term. They may turn to illicit sources of, dr- of opioid drugs from the street. And so uh, it, it calls for a better addiction treatment. It calls for education of physicians on how to taper people. But it also points to some deficiencies in our ability in the healthcare system to manage people with chronic pain. I think the reason why doctors have turned to opioids is because we don't have good alternatives for people who are in chronic pain. Okay. Uh, I hear a lot about harm reduction and supervised injection sites. I believe there's a a forum being held this week uh, to talk about uh, Bill C-37 and other cities wanting to get supervised injection sites. I don't hear as much about treatment. Um, so I'm wondering what kind of treatment is available in Vancouver for people who want to stop using illicit drugs. Well, you're absolutely right that we, going forward, we need to start focusing more on treatment. I think yeah. our initial response to the crisis, uh, distributing naloxone, recognizing that harm reduction is a, a very important part of the response because people who, uh, who inject or consume their drugs in a supervised manner, if they do suffer an overdose, somebody can respond. Mm-hmm. And places like Insight and the new overdose prevention sites that we've established, we've had no deaths in, in those locations. But ultimately, we need to improve the addiction treatment system in order to get ahead of this crisis. Uh, you can get uh, oral opioid agonist therapy, which means you get a substitute Opioid treatment, uh, historically, Mm -hmm. we gave methadone to people who um, had heroin addiction or other opioid addiction. The recommended drug now is a drug called Suboxone, which is considered safer and more effective. But we we 
we need to expand availability of that. Um, and, and that won't work for everybody. Um, yeah. Some people might need injectable opioid agonist therapy. And there's only one clinic right now in BC that offers that. It's the Crosstown Clinic yeah. here in Vancouver. Some people may need to go into detox to, to get off their uh, drugs to start with and then follow up perhaps with residential treatment or other uh, types of treatment. And, and detox is available here. One of the concerns is that we don't have a good coordinated system of care. So people mm -hmm. who go into detox uh, need to ensure that we provide very good follow-up and monitoring when they leave. Otherwise, they're actually, they could be at higher risk of death uh, because uh, when you detox and go off your drugs, you lose your tolerance to them. Uh, opioid addiction is a chronic relapsing condition. So yeah. people who go into detox or residential treatment, very likely to suffer multiple relapses before they uh, hopefully uh, get off their drugs completely. Some may never get off their drugs. But, but, but in order to get to that point of treatment, I think the police chief, uh, the mayor, fire chief, uh, they all got together, I think it was in December, yeah. at a press conference to say, we need treatment on demand. This is something that I hear police officers talk a lot about, that if they roll up to someone who says, okay, you know, I've had enough, I need treatment. The chief and other police officers are saying we can't get treatment on demand for drug users in this city. Why, why is that? Well, uh, I, when they talk about treatment on demand, they're talking about beds, they, yeah. they, they, that people need to be admitted for treatment. And that is not the only option, and it may not even be the safest or best option. Right now, some of our addiction specialists have, have said we don't want to refer people into detox because a lot of the people dying of overdoses are people who just left detox. Okay. And that's because we know they, they get off their drugs, but, but opioid addicts, because they're at such high risk of relapsing, they're, uh, most are, 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 are going to relapse at some point, and they've lost their tolerance for the drugs because of their detox, and now they're actually at higher risk of death. So given those statistics, they're wary about even referring people to detox. What we have put in place is... Um, uh, in, at least in the downtown east side, is the ability for people to walk into, for example, the mobile medical unit that we've yeah. established down there and immediately start oral opioid agonist therapy. So that is treatment on demand. There's no wait. There's an addiction physician in that unit, 12 hours a day, seven days a week, who can start people on that treatment. It, not everybody's ready for it, but mm -hmm. if people are ready for treatment, the, there are other options besides a detox bed, or a residential treatment bed, and those other options may even be preferable or safer for those people. And we are expanding those here now in Vancouver. And all those services, as you know, cost a lot of money. Um, as far as I can remember, uh, there's been a lot of money poured into the downtown east side for various services, health services, yet we still have severe problems with homelessness, drug addiction, and mental health. Why is that? It seems like something isn't working, even though all the money has been poured in there. You've heard that before. Yeah. We have to remember that uh, the money that we're pouring in, at least from Vancouver Coastal Health, are for health services for people in need. But if you look at some of those health concerns, homelessness, even drug addiction or mental illness, there are other determinants of, of health that need to be addressed, like poverty reduction, like housing for people. Uh, we need to look at the, uh, the trauma that can occur in early childhood, uh, physical, emotional, sexual abuse that can lead people 
to use substance, substances in the first place to relieve that pain. We need to consider reconciliation for Aboriginal peoples. Certainly in this overdose crisis, there's an overrepresentation of Aboriginal people among those who are dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, the causes of the crisis can't be solved only by the health services that we're putting into the downtown east side. We need to begin to address those other determinants. And I know that uh, those of us in public health have been advocating for that for some time. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to pause for a short break uh, to alert our listeners to some of the other podcasts featured on the Press Play Network. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Haley Wooden. And I'm Tyler Orton. And we co-host BIV's podcast on a weekly basis. What are we talking about, Tyler? Real estate, retail, technology. We have lots of news going on with regards to the resources sector as well. Everything you could possibly hope for when it comes to the West Coast business community. Listen to us on the Press Play Network at pressplaynetwork.ca. Also go to biv.com and we will post the show every single week. We're back in studio with Dr. Daly, the Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. I wanted to switch gears a bit and talk about something we've discussed uh, a couple of years ago, and that's public health's influence on shaping policy in Vancouver. I know that you and your colleagues recommended way back in 2001 that Council reject a mega casino, and Council did. Uh, you and your colleagues recommended measures related to regulating marijuana dispensaries, and council agreed. Uh, you and your colleagues supported the need for a suicide prevention fence on the Burrard Bridge, and council agreed to that too. Um, and, of course, recently you've supported city measures to combat the opioid crisis. I, I don't recall a health authority being this visible at City Hall and having such influence. Am I wrong there? We have a very good relationship with the City of Vancouver. We actually have a memorandum of understanding to work together on their Healthy City strategy. Uh, historically, um, uh, public health has been was part of the municipal inf- municipal infrastructure. So, the history of public health officials working very closely with local government uh, is 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 the norm. Actually, in yeah. fact, it's in places like Ontario, City of Toronto is still part of the municipal government there, okay. uh, and work very closely with the municipal government. And that's because local government, uh, even though they're not responsible for delivery of health services can actually have a significant influence over the health of the population. Uh, based, uh, they, they, they're responsible, for example, for safe drinking water. Uh, for uh, They can be responsible for air quality. Some of their land use planning can influence population health. So working closely with local government is important for public health officials. We also know that public policy is one of the key levers to improve the health of the population. So you think about smoking bylaws, for example, mm-hmm. within a municipality can actually reduce rates of smoking, reduce um, uh, illness and death from smoking-related disease. So the, the the close relationship between public health and municipal government is not new. It's always been there. We have worked very hard to have a good relationship with the uh, the staff of the city of Vancouver, the elected officials, we do that by providing very good health population health data mm-hmm. uh, and by working jointly on uh, goals for their healthy city strategy. And it's, and uh, we think it's been effective for both the city and for uh, those of us working in public health. I do recall though, when uh, uh, your former colleague, uh, Dr. John Carsley showed up to council during the mega casino uh, debate. Um, the Councillor Reimer said to me later, "It seems so out of out of the box." I think is what her quote was to have a public health official 
there. So she was kind of surprised to, to see that. But it, it seems like you have a, a great influence on shaping the policy of the city here. Yeah, and I think in that instance, um, problem gambling is a relatively newly recognized public health concern. So I think right. the the city traditionally would expect to see us there when they talked about smoking bylaws yeah. or or safe drinking water. But that was a little bit out of the box. But yeah. I think what you're seeing now in the 21st century is the public health issues that we need to address are not the traditional ones of uh, – of, for example, safe drinking water or communicable diseases. Right. Uh, there are some of these other health concerns like injury prevention with the suicide barriers on the bridge, problem gambling, which is really a form of addiction, and some of the other uh, uh, health concerns associated with substance use where municipal governments may not have considered that they have a role, but we can provide them with evidence to show that they can actually um, do things that will improve the health of the population. And they've been very open to that, and we appreciate that. You were also on the yes side during the uh, transit and transportation referendum. That seemed you know, like a political move uh, from the health authority. Well, first of all, I have to say it was not the health authority. It was medical health officers in our independent role. Okay. And uh, that's really important to understand that although okay. we're employees of the health authorities, we actually have um, independent powers under the Public Health Act to advocate to improve the health of the population. And um, one of the new areas that that you'll you'll see public health officials begin to address, you know, in the last 15, 20 years, is what we call the healthy built environment. Knowing that chronic diseases are now the the number one causes of preventable illness and death, things like heart disease, cancer, lung disease, we need to look at those uh, risk factors for those diseases, and they include things like physical activity, uh, smoking, healthy eating. What we've come to realize is that the way that uh, municipalities are are organized, the way uh, the built environment is planned can actually influence public health. And that's relatively new data. But mm -hmm. we've been able to demonstrate, for example, that transit can uh, – people who use transit have higher rates of physical activity. And therefore, it can improve uh, po uh, population health. We also mm -hmm. know that improved transit can reduce um, air toxins because fewer people are driving. So there are – we feel it's important to advocate for uh, any initiatives that might um, have a, a positive benefit on the health of the population, and transit is one of those initiatives. Was that the first time you got involved in a, in a campaign at that level, though? Because it was pretty divided. There was a lot of money on both sides arguing. Yes, and I, I would say it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting experience. Uh, I certainly got some negative feedback from the public because of our position yeah. uh, advocating on the yes side. Um, we tried to ensure that the messages that we conveyed were related to population health. They were related to improving air quality, uh, reducing the risk of injuries, improving levels of physical activity. And we actually provided some local data to show, for example, that people who use transit, walk or bike to work, have higher overall levels of physical activity than those who don't. Mm -hmm. And uh, we believe that being on the S side would benefit the entire population, not just those people who use transit. So because for those who might choose to or, or need to use cars to commute to work or school, uh, there would be improved air quality because we'd have fewer cars on the road. So uh, we, we, we ensured that our reasons were public health reasons, but certainly we faced a little bit of backlash because of the politics around that particular campaign. wanted to talk about um, uh, legalization. I know that you're on record as supporting the legalization and regulation of illegal drugs. Can you explain to listeners why you've taken that position? 
public health docs in BC actually have a, we've studied this extensively. We have a position paper on what we call psychoactive substances. And what we've argued is that if you look at the harms associated with um, psychoactive substances, there are two extremes. There are those substances that are illegal, like heroin, like cocaine, uh, like marijuana. Then there are, on the other extreme, are the legal substances that are actively promoted and actually are responsible overall for more health harms because they're more widely used, things like mm-hmm. tobacco and alcohol. There's actually, um, we feel that we need to move to what we call a public health regulatory approach for both extremes. So sometimes councils, I've had questions from council about why I support legalization of marijuana and even other mm-hmm. illicit drugs, and yet we want to control uh, the distribution of, of tobacco and alcohol. But really, it's the same argument. Uh, We're trying to move from both extremes of what we call that U-shaped curve of harm down to a middle ground where all psychoactive substances are regulated. uh, And uh, we we actually think that having them illegal increases the the risk of harm. And we see that with this opioid crisis, which Mm -hmm. is really caused by a contamination of the illicit drug supply. For people who are on prescription heroin, uh, they can actually be stabilized. They're not dying of overdoses. But when the heroin is contaminated with fentanyl, they're at very high risk of dying. I know that position paper you referred to, that's the one you did back in 2011 with the Health Officers Council that's of BC? That's right, yeah. Okay. So that's Health Officers Council of BC. Do medical health officers across the country share the same view? I think you would find that the vast majority share that view. That paper came from the, the health officers in British Columbia, but we shared it with our colleagues across Canada. Uh, and it's been, uh, uh, I think many uh, would agree that they support that approach. Mm-hmm. I'm part of a, a network of um, medical health officers in the big cities across Canada, and uh, similar to the big city mayors. And uh, there's widespread agreement that that's uh, a, a, an approach that we need to take to address the harms associated with illicit drugs across Canada. So if I understand that, you have the best medical minds across the country supporting legalization and regulation. So why aren't we there yet? I think it's going to take some time to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other side of the coin, it took us uh, some time to begin to uh, reduce the harms associated with tobacco, to uh, have stricter smoking bylaws, to uh, even now there's more we, we think we need to do to put the genie back in the box with tobacco and with alcohol. So it does. T- I think it's going to take some time uh, for the public to get there. I think it's important, and of course, the, the local government, the politicians will respond to what the to the interests of the public. So I think mm-hmm. what we need to do as health officials is really articulate that uh, we're not going to see increased drug use if we follow this approach, because that's often the concern um, from the public mm-hmm. is that um, these uh, illegal, illicit drugs are harmful if you legalize them. And this is not an argument that is unreasonable. There might be more widespread use. And if we look at tobacco and alcohol, with our, which are legal, that's true. Mm-hmm. What we have to do is articulate that we're not suggesting that these be legal and actively marketed and promoted, right. that they be regulated. That's, that's the difference. That's the difference. Um, I know, as you know, Vancouver has you know, led the country in terms of progressive drug policy, the opening of Insight in 2003 and the Dr. Peter Center injection room as well. But I'm just wondering how that um, translates to what other cities are doing. And does it take an opioid crisis in a city for others to take notice? Like, What have you heard from other health officers, people you talk to across the country? Are they 
moving in this direction? Or, I mean, it's one thing to state that they support this, but is there any action? I can tell you that um, public health officials in a number of cities across the country have been trying for years to implement, for example, supervised injection sites. Right. So City of Montreal had applications into the government that were just approved, but they put them in years ago. Right. City of Toronto has been in, in, interested, Edmonton, Ottawa, other cities. Uh, the political environment in, in those cities didn't always support those kind of policies, so that's been the challenge. And even in other places outside of Vancouver and British Columbia, you know, we haven't seen um, establishment of some of these initiatives it's unfortunate that, that it takes an opioid crisis to spur people on, but it's a little bit like war. It's terrible, mm -hmm. but sometimes you're able to spread innovation as a result. Mm -hmm. So this crisis has actually really opened the door uh, to um, initiatives across BC, but also elsewhere in Canada. And I have to say, we also have a new government now federally that's made mm -hmm. it. Um, easier to think about some of these initiatives. They've certainly signaled that they're much more willing to approve exemptions for supervised injection sites than they have done so in Montreal. Um, so we've, I think there's now support locally, provincially, and federally at the political levels to move forward. And as I said, it's unfortunate it took a crisis like this to do it, mm -hmm. but we don't want to lose this opportunity to start to implement these initiatives. Yeah, I wanted to take you back a couple of months ago. I remember I attended the press conference with yourself and Dr. Perry Kendall, where you announced that you're opening overdose prevention sites. And um, not that I was surprised, but at the same time, I recall all the political battles, the legal battles in the courts just to keep insight open. And then it seemed like in one day, you announced that you're opening injection rooms and Van Du and other other offices around town. So, how did that happen? It doesn't sound like it was an overnight decision, but to me, it seemed like legal battle, political battle. And then, oh, we're just going to open them. Well, you're <laughs> how did that right. happen? There was about a decade of real battles. Yeah, but just to remember that that was under the previous federal government because right. they're the ones who have to grant the exemption for for right. supervised injection sites, who made it clear that they would not did not want to grant those exemptions. Uh, and actually, they tried, they didn't want to renew Insight's exemption. And that's what the legal battles entailed. So we had a, a period there under the previous federal government where it was really impossible to, to open new supervised injection sites. That changed with the change in government. But what we have still left in place federally is a very onerous process to get those exemptions. Um, you know, we declared this public health emergency last spring. We've got two yeah. pending applications here in Vancouver that have not yet been granted, even though we have a more receptive federal government. So it's still too onerous, mm -hmm. and it's going to take some time to change that. Now, I give all credit for the overdose prevention sites to Minister Terry Lake. The provincial government in BC has always been supportive of supervised injection sites. Uh, the, the difficulties have always been at the federal level with federal legislation. But with the crisis and with the uh, cold weather in, in, at the end of November and December, Terry Lake was very concerned about increasing deaths. And actually, he was right because deaths mm -hmm. were going up at that time. He was concerned that because it was so cold, people would be injecting alone in their rooms, were more likely to die. And he wanted us to take action immediately to address that. The idea of overdose prevention sites wasn't new. Um, we had actually proposed something along those lines um, sometime earlier in Vancouver, and we were had developed guidelines for how we might implement it. Some of it came from our own staff, it came from staff of community agencies like Van Du and Portland Hotel Society who said, look, 
People are dying. If they inject alone, they're much more likely to die. If they can be in a place where someone can respond, if they overdose, we can save their life. It was that simple. But it was really Minister Lake, and actually he uh, gave us an, uh, an order that allowed us to open these uh, facilities. And he actually brought together the health officers and said, I want you to do this as soon as possible. But was there any conversation with the feds about this? Don't you need federal approval? Well, obviously you don't because they're open, but don't you need some sign-off from the feds to say, yeah, okay, we approve of these overdose prevention sites, which, by the way, are injection rooms. Uh, I've seen them. People buy their drugs illegally on the street. They go into a room. There's clean supplies there. They inject. There are people who come in. their peers to monitor them. I've seen nurses in some of them coming by to check on them. So call it what you will. They're injection rooms. But don't you need federal sign-off to do this? Well, the federal government was aware we did this. Right. So uh, Minister Lake did contact Minister Philpott to advise her that we were proceeding in this manner. And she's been very supportive of uh, the BC government taking any measures necessary to address the opioid crisis. So they right. didn't do it without talking to them. Okay. And so they're aware. Uh, remember that the, the federal exemption for a supervised injection site is needed so that our staff who are working in those facilities aren't subject to arrest under uh, uh, Canada's drug laws. Right. But I think in this crisis, we've seen we've got tremendous support from uh, from the police, uh, not only the Vancouver police, but the RCMP and police forces across the province to do whatever is necessary to prevent death. So this was an opportunity to say, we're going to do something a little bit different. We acknowledge that um, people are going to inject and they're going to die if they're doing it alone. Mm-hmm. Here's what we can do to reduce the risk of death. The police uh, are are very upset about this crisis as well. They don't like to have to attend to all these drug overdose deaths day after day. So uh, it, really, I think the stars were aligned because of the crisis to get the support we needed, and the federal government was, uh, was supportive of this. How much of that was triggered, though, by the work of the people at Van Du, Sarah Blythe? Noticed in the city that there's a lot of, you know, kind of do-it-yourself mentality that if government's not going to listen, if health officers are not going to listen. We're just going to go ahead and do it anyway because people are dying on the street. So how much of that um, shaped what we're seeing now with overdose prevention sites and other measures? I'm glad you raised that because we have to give uh, full credit to those people, to Van Du, to Portland Hotel Society, to Sarah Blythe and Ann Livingston. They had set up their uh, overdose prevention tent in an alley uh, and um, we converted that actually eventually to an overdose prevention site, but without them pushing the envelope. And, and back in the 90s, they did the same thing yeah. to establish insight. We wouldn't have been able to do this as quickly. And we often see that in public health, that it, it does take uh, community organizers, even members of the public, to stand up and advocate for things. And they're often... Um, they can often be much more effective than government officials, even public health officers, and, and making things happen more quickly. So I give them full credit. They they shone a light on the crisis. Uh, it was great that the media covered it, and I think that went a long way to get these things established as quickly as they were. Okay. All right. I think uh, we're coming close to time there. So I just wanted to wrap up maybe with one more question. And everybody is talking and concerned about um, the opioid overdose crisis. So here we are in February. Are we going to be talking again in December about another 914 deaths? I mean, 
difficult to predict, but what's your sense of what the rest of the year is going to look like? I don't think we're going to end the crisis anytime soon. I think we're going to have to get used to the fact that there are going to be contaminants in the illicit drug supply that are going to increase the risk uh, and increase deaths. Uh, I do think that our focus going forward in 2017 needs to be on rapidly expanding addiction treatment for people with opioid addiction to get them off their uh, illicit drugs and on to substitutes. I do think that means we're going to have to do much more than we have up until now to expand injectable opioid treatment, injectable prescription heroin or hydromorphone. Um, uh, so that's going to be our focus going forward. Uh, we certainly hope that we'll start to see a downturn in this. But um, uh, and pub public health officers across BC recognize this may be the new normal for some time to come. Mm. Well, uh, hopefully uh, that won't be the new normal and we'll have you back in at the end of the year and maybe there's some more positive news to share on that front. I hope so. I want to thank you for coming in today and um, giving us some valuable insight into the state of public health in the city and the challenges of responding to an unprecedented overdose crisis in uh, Vancouver and the rest of the province. Thanks uh, for keeping us informed and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much, Mike. Pleasure yeah. to be here. Okay, that's our show for today. I hope you learned something. I've got some more movers and shakers lined up for future podcasts. You can listen in by going to the Vancouver Courier's website at vancourier.com or the Press Play Network at pressplay.ca. You can get in touch by following me on Twitter at Howlings, look for me on Facebook, or email me at mhowell at vancourier.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you soon.